John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 436.nu2021 certificate number 51829 exclaves you're from an exclave john you're the native son of an exclave am i Tell me more. I love to be a member of things. Do I get a certificate? <laughs> you just want a you just want some kind of ceremonial patch. I do. Like is it another medal I can put on my fake uh my fake Bismarck uniform? Is there a pancake breakfast? And follow up question, is it on a federal holiday where none of my other memberships have a pancake breakfast? I'm still looking for a Labor Day. I go to four a week. <laughs> Uh, an exclave well, an exclavian uh, okay. would be you're I love from, that. You're from Alaska. Yes. Uh, Alaska is not part of the contiguous United States. Both geographically and em- mentally, emotionally. Like, uh, and spiritually as well. Yes. The, the Aurora Borealis puts you on a, a higher plane. It does. Even though there's no, nothing psychotropic grows up there, right? There's no linen lichens you can lick. Oh, are you kidding me? There's Matanuska Thunder F. I didn't even, I don't even know what that is. Well, can I say the dirty word? No, because I, we keep getting letters from people who are like, I was in my car with my teenager and you said the word dildo. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just bleep out when you said F. So it sounds like you said, well, I'll just say it and then you, we can bleep it out. Okay. Mark miles. Are you ready? Okay. Ma- are you ready? Yeah. And are you going to bleep dildo? It's up to you, Mark. <laughs> Which part of dildo? Dill beep. D- beep. Oh, <laughs> Did he say Duplo? Duplo. You don't want to be putting Duplo there. No, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a strand of marijuana that grew oh. in Alaska in the summers. Because, you know, in in the Matanuska Valley where it grew in the the middle of the summer, there's 20 hours of daylight or something. And so there was this strain of, of weed that purportedly came from like laboratory weed that had been escaped yeah that had been de- developed by the <laughs> NSA is it sentient is this like the secret of nim basically it's like the perp that's the hairiest <laughs> purple buds and it was called it was this was after maui wowie was really the wowie of, of if, if hawaii's of done it alaska can do it too yeah. where's that guam bomb or tie stick and then it was matanuska thunder f- which was that then and you know that that was 
it was a dirty word and that was meant to express how hairy and purple these buds were. Plus how off the off the grid Alaska is. Oh, like yeah. we can just put swears in the name of our of mm-hmm. our weed and who, who's going to stop us? So the Mounties, you know, when you'd get when you'd get a bag of weed in Alaska, it was like, oh, this has got these orange, it's got orange fur on it. It's from Canada or Mexico, but then you'd get these crazy giant purple buds. So yes, Alaska does. I mean, it's not native to Alaska, but it was. But the idea of uh, some kind of marijuana variety coming from Alaska hits different than when it's coming from a a, a breezy, balmy, tropical clime. Like Hawaii seems like it's the right climate, both weather and emotion wise, yes, to produce uh, a, 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 a stimulant or a well, marijuana is not a stimulant, mm. a, a psychotropic. Well, here's the thing, though the 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 weeds that grow wild that actually go to seed and fertilize themselves, and you know they're all it's ditch dirty. weeds. They're just like not they don't. The hybrids are the ones that get you really baked, and they all come from the Netherlands, where, you know, their people are in in rooms with uh, hydroponic sure. lights, and they're naked Thai women exactly, and they're manipulating the genes of these different strains. It, you can find weed growing on the side of the road in Hungary, and it's just garbage. And you're saying this? Oh, I thought you were going to say the subtle the subtle high that comes from your Alaskan weed is more organic and oh pure. there was nothing subtle about it it was like getting hit with a softball bat. oh right because it was escaped from a lab yeah uh well I, you know i'm just imagining the trope of you know you, you know you want to think that indigenous people all know what all the the leaves and barks you oh. can eat to induce uh visions and enlightenment right whereas there's no peyote up, up, up there, north no. there's yeah up north there's you know these amazingly distinct indigenous cultures preserved for centuries in the ice. Mostly preserved. Except except for that now they all have jet skis. There's really counts, only but. one word for snow. That's a, <laughs> um, but, yeah, but, that's but it, they don't have good barks to lick. It's not famous for agriculture. Right? A lot of those subsistence oh, cultures are about everybody hunting. everybody's just eating walrus fat. Yeah. Hunting and fishing. You know, I I don't I don't know on the North Slope whether the Inupiat have any vegetables it, well anyway it's not a famous part of their cuisine they don't get scurvy because they eat whatever part of the bear or the seal that has a little bit of vitamin c in it the delicious oil mm, the, the, this, the, boy I, I sure don't want to eat this kidney but my body's craving it. Mm. it must have something good in there well what's the vibe when you live in a in an exclave, a, a, a part of America that cannot be reached via America. It's America and yet not. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, when you're growing up there, you don't feel... I always, and I think a lot of my peers did, kind of romanticized America. We spoke the same language. We had all the same culture. But it was far away. And it wasn't, an, it wasn't completely... Uh, like intelligible to us. The mental space is not the same as if you're just in some remote area of the West, right? Does living in Alaska feel emotionally or spiritually different than living in Wyoming? Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of the things that define or at least defined American culture in the eighties, like high school football and the rust belt and, you know, that kind of just John Cougar America, but also LA culture in that same time that was skateboardy and, 
and surfy and New York culture that was all sort of leather jackety and urban. None of those things translated. And yet, and yet people tried. That's what you see on MTV. Yeah. So. so there were kids up in Alaska that were like repping a total surf surfer vibe and kids up there that were like hometown country you know high school football and and there were guys in leather jackets but none of it was was like indigenous even to white culture um the only people that are truly there are two kinds of alaskans that are truly endemic to the region and one of them is the snowshoeing like um like cross country skiing hippie those are they're they're endemic they've been yeah, there for thousands sort of years of hippie trapper eating ptarmigans and then the other one is the bulldozer driving cigar chomping flat top wearing like resource extraction person like those two people just those two groups of people just feel like these are alaskan what about right? the inuit they hate each other oh i mean and of course it goes without saying but there are land acknowledgement portion of the show there are 17 different types of native americans in alaska and they're a lot of them aren't aren't related to one another at all. But they were there before the the flat crew cut bulldozer guys, presumably. Yes, they were. The flat the, the flat top bulldozer guys actually kind of came in later, but well, bulldozers, <laughs> right? But the original, you know, the Jack London guys were the were the first whites up there. It doesn't sound all that different than the like, Russians, I guess the Russians. I mean, it reminds me of my kind of expat overseas childhood. You're American, but you're keenly aware that you're just getting that culture in dribs and drabs via whatever the media can give you. And then trying to figure out which one of these belongs to me. Yeah. Like for me, I adopted an East Coast Ivy League aesthetic. Alaska's only preppy. Well, no, I wasn't the only preppy though. I mean, there was a whole community of preppies and we all believed that we were the heirs to that culture. Boat shoes and... <laughs> and like reptiles, uh, although those National you know, Honor Society meetings must have been great. <laughs> they really were. Are you kidding me? Boys State, outrageous. So I feel like the word enclave or enclave, as it's sometimes said, yes. is more common. Which would you say, enclave or enclave? I always say enclave, but guess what? Webster's prefers enclave. I think I use them separately. I would say enclave to mean like a something here regionally, like a social one. Yeah. Like and, like a subculture, and then uh, and then enclave would be something that I would reserve for like the a Russian diplomatic mission. Uh, yeah, I okay, I'll or, allow that. You know, like like what was Jakarta uh, before it was Jakarta? Batavia. It was, it was Batavia, right? And Batavia wasn't an, was an enclave. The uh, yeah, enclave is a word that can be used metaphorically to mean any kind of, you know, isolated or, or different, you know, a metaphorical island of something or someone, a community. Amish, Ohio. For example. But it has a specific, a technical geographic meaning, hmm. which is uh, a portion of a territory that is surrounded entirely by another larger distinct territory. And generally these are um, so like political boundaries. Well, Liechtenstein's not an enclave because it's not surrounded entirely by oh, anything. It's Switzerland and it's on the border of Switzerland and Austria. Right. Oh, um, so it's like Vatican City. Vatican City's an example of an enclave. Uh, an 
exclave, as we've said, is you know part of a territory that's not contiguous that you you know you can't really reach by land. You've got to go through other territory to get there, like Kaliningrad. Kaliningrad Oblast, for example, uh, which we will discuss. Oh. Uh, it's part of Russia, but you'd have to go through Poland or Lithuania to get there, and Putin probably will at some point. <laughs> no, he will not. <laughs> not if the not if NAFO has anything to say about it. The uh, you know some exclaves are enclaves. This is turning into a Dr. Seuss bit. All right, go um, on. <laughs> for, are they on a train? Uh, for like, example, um, what's a good example of this? I, I mean, I guess an enclave that's an enclave. Oh no, a, an exclave that's an enclave. The Vatican City, for example, is not an exclave because even though it's its own surrounded thing, it's not an. It's 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 the whole territory. It's right. not a, a an outpost a, of something else. There are no colonial possessions, or it's it the, is not a colonial. Maybe possession. when the Pope is in Argentina chilling, maybe at that point, the Vatican becomes a a theological exclave of Latin America. Or like Air Force One, is it both an exclave and an enclave? <laughs> I have an outlaw for an in-law. <laughs> An, uh, an example of a, so, you know, the Vatican City is an enclave that's not an exclave. Um, plenty of exclaves are not enclaves. For example, you mentioned, well, Liechtenstein's a bad example. Let's take something Liechtenstein-like. Um, there's a part of Armenia that we'll discuss in a minute. Oh, sorry, a part of Azerbaijan that actually lies all the way across Armenia. Yeah, right. More toward Iran and Turkey called Nakhchivan. Now, that is an exclave of Azerbaijan. Unless you ask the Armenians, they'll probably say it's theirs. Uh, but because it's not entirely surrounded by Armenia, because it's got Armenia on one side and then Turkey and Iran, that's not an enclave. It's it's Liechtenstein-like. Now, what about East Pakistan before it was Bangladesh? I always wondered about this. East Pakistan was part of Pakistan? Yeah. And I think that seems—wait, was it ever, like, at— Administratively— At partition— is Bangladesh independent but called East Pakistan? I think it's not, right? I think I, it's. I always thought that the two were were a, a single political entity, kind of like the you, you, briefly the United Arab, Arab Republic, Republic yeah. when it was when Egypt and Syria were one. Yes, uh, it it did not become an independent Bangladesh until I think around 1971 or 72. Yeah. 1972. George Harrison threw a concert for them and then they became an independent country. That immediately happens when George Harrison Mm -hmm. sings about you. Throws a secret policeman's ball. And then all of a sudden you're a whole new, it's a whole new culture. That's why my, uh, my guitar is an independent country when it weeps. It's Mm. why the sun is an independent country. Mm. Uh, Here it comes. And uh, so, yeah, uh, I guess at that time, Pakistan, or sorry, East Pakistan, the future Bangladesh, would have been an exclave of Pakistan Central, uh, mainland Pakistan. But an enclave within... And it would have been an enclave within India. But keep in mind that it also borders the Bay of Bengal. Right. So there, so it's not really an enclave. No, because it, it touches... It touch, um, touches other nations. Yes. Campuchia. No, it doesn't touch Campuchia. You want a nation that only touches itself. Yeah, hello. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, if you have a coastline, you can still be an exclave or an enclave, but typically it's, uh, it's qualified in some way. This is a semi, semi-exclave or enclave. Or sometimes the, the term penne exclave is used. Mm, it's um, one of my favorite. 
It's uh, one of my favorite uh, use, mm, use cases for pesto. Yeah, I'm hungry for for a little. That's why most of your pasta is over here, but then a little one fell over here on the other side of the of the bread. Uh, a penne enclave is when you know. I think it's the same root as peninsula, meaning or penultimate, almost the last Pen- peninsula, almost an island. Mm-hmm. Penis is almost an is. Mm? Uh, no, I don't think that's true. But oh, a, wait, but there a are penne all- enclave is almost an enclave because. You still can't get there, but you could. You can by water. Can't get there from here. Alaska is a penne enclave because it's not surrounded by Canada on all sides. You it, can hop a cruise ship from Seattle. It has like four penises in it. Alaska has so many <laughs> I mean, penises. It is. It's basically just like an octopus of penises. Is that how uh, land penises? Is that how people in you know how people in Michigan draw on their hand where they live in the Lower Peninsula? Uh-huh. How does that work in Alaska? You like which penis you live on, Bob? Well, most of the people don't live in the penises. Because the cities are not in the penises, there are a few. There, there are lots of towns in the in the penises, but most of the people live in the vagina. Uh, the half of the population because Anchorage does. is an inlet. Yeah, I see that. That's where they're anchored down. Is Juno uh, a, Juno's a penis, on a penis or a vagina? Yeah. I thought so. Yeah, it's down on it's. It's actually in a minor vagina within a penis. Boy, the people that don't like us saying. Uh, uh, dirty words. I mean, not that either of those are dirty. Let's they're not dirty. No, it's just. It's just ge- but, but geographical terms. Let's say you're listening to this with your with your future tentacled kids in the car. Mm-hmm. You don't want them imagining uh, penises and vaginas every time they look at a map of Alaska. No, but they're just penises. If they're if they if they're made of tentacles, they're uh, just a writhing ball of penises. If your kids a certain age, they are thinking about penises and vaginas when they look at a map of anything. That's right. Right. But but but. The best example of this are the townships in South Africa, right? Mm. Aren't they enclaves? The ones that were created under apartheid? He, well, or are you talking about Swaziland and Lesotho? Yeah, the, the ones that still exist to this day. Uh, Lesotho is an enclave in that it's surrounded by South Africa on both sides. I think Swaziland has a little bit of Mozambique or something sticking down there. Um, there, were the, there were the homelands that were created under apartheid in hopes of um, basically getting more of the black majority away from the white minority. And that's when they created Trans-K and Venda and Bofatitswana, and none of them had any real self-governance. Um, no other country on earth recognized them except for South Africa and, I don't know, maybe Rhodesia at some point. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, sure Rhodesia did. Oh, maybe it, actually, it might post-date it might post-date Mugabe, the... Uh, so Soweto had a, over a million people. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's not a, it might be an enclave. It's not an exclave of anything, unless right. you mean of, uh, of, actual, <laughs> of actual black sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but it didn't have any political power or official territoriality. Um, I mean, enclaves don't have to be national. Uh, West Hollywood is an enclave within Los Angeles in that it's its own municipality, but it's surrounded on all sides by the city of Los Angeles. And many, many of the world's enclaves and exclaves are subnational. You know, a little, a little bit of this Japanese province is stuck over here on this Japanese province for some reason. Right. Um, not all exclaves are as big as Alaska. It's probably, I can't see how it would not be the world's largest exclave. Unless you're counting well, like, Denmark or Greenland as a Yeah, when, as when Australia was an exclave of, of Britain... People typically didn't use this usage for uh, colonies and overseas territories during the age of colonialism. Oh. Today, there's few enough that I guess you can say, yeah, Gibraltar is an exclave of 
yeah. Britain and French Guiana is an exclave of France in that it, you know, doesn't touch. Right. Um, but at the time, nobody would say most of Southeastern Africa is an exclave of Britain. Most of West Africa is an exclave <laughs> of France. Um, everybody just had, you just had possessions yeah. if you were good enough. Right. I mean, the, the exclave conversation today kind of implies a certain kind of symmetry. Alaska is a state just like California is, except not. Because you can't get there from here. No. Um, it implies something about the geography and, as, as you've pointed out, the culture as well. Um, but most enclaves are small. We live near one of the few, I said enclave, most exclaves are small. We live near one of the very few um, Canadian exclaves. Yeah, American, American, American exclave. exclaves within Canada, of which there are, I believe, six what really well there's a couple in maybe two or three in minnesota the northwest angle sticks up like a pimple above lake of the woods i think that's a um 18th century surveying area where after the revolution the americans and british canada decided that uh british canada would uh the borders of the northwest border of america would be the north the northern shore of lake of the woods and then it would connect over west to the mississippi what people didn't know back then is the, the Mississippi does not flow that north. The Mississippi does not flow into Canada. It ends in Minnesota. So there is no way to go due west from Lake of the Woods until you hit the Mississippi. Um, so later this had to be corrected, but by that time there was already this little pimple of America sticking up the Northwest Angle. What could you do about it? They would not have another pig war. Right. This uh, this is going to harken back to the, uh, the pig war. And so the Northwest Angle still just has a few hundred people. It's inconvenient. There's nothing there but maybe one little store that sells fishing bait because it's mostly where people go for walleye. Everything in northern Minnesota is inconvenient. This case particularly so because you have to cross through 60 miles of Canada to get to the closest grocery store, which means you actually have to notify border patrols from possibly both countries every time you run an errand if you're one of the couple hundred people that live in the Northwest. They got to all know each other up there. They had their own version of the pig war in the 1990s when there was some kind of trade dispute over fish. And suddenly I think uh, the United States declared that any fish caught on the Canadian side of the border could not be sold within Northwest Angle because it's American territory. Uh, Did the fish subsequently respect the border? (laughs) Yes. The fish were taught to stay on... (laughs) No, the fish were allowed to go back and forth. Uh, it's just the point at which they're caught, I think, was the was the legal crux of the issue. Is there any evidence that the Russians taught some of the fish to be agents of espionage? How do you think the Russians are even getting into Lake of the Woods? This is not one of the Great Lakes. You can't right. Russian subs can't go up the St. Lawrence Seaway here. Right, right, right. Uh, I think actually, instead of the Russians, we had the Russians' greatest enemy, Jesse Ventura, uh-huh. got involved. <laughs> you can count on him and and stuck up for the uh, for the fishermen who are having a hard time selling their Canadian caught. I saw uh, a map rights. the other day where someone suggested that if we excavated and flooded the state of West Virginia, we could create a waterway like a saltwater to saltwater waterway up through the rivers to the Great Lakes and then up, you know, we'd have to do a little more excavating through Canada. Yeah, I wasn't really, I saw that ocean. map too. It must yeah. have been on the the Future Links page. It wasn't clear what they were going to do. I think they needed all the dirt from West Virginia to block, what? The St. Lawrence? I can't remember. Well, yeah, but it was, what it was going to do was turn the Great Lakes into a saltwater 
uh, bay, set of bays. <laughs> that that longtime dream. <laughs> Talk about an octopus of penises. For centuries, man has dreamed of salinating the Great Lakes. <laughs> uh, no, our version of uh, of the Northwest Angle is a little less sad. It's Point Roberts. Have you ever been? No, and I haven't either. I'm I'm curious about it. We're up there all the time. I know you're up there in that region all the time. It's a wonderful part of the country, but there has just never been a compelling reason to go to all the trouble. It is a lot of trouble. Uh, that's something we're going to find out about exclaves. Is that it's a bit of a hassle mm-hmm. being in an exclave. I mean, Alaska is big enough that it has a lot of its own infrastructure for things. Yeah, mostly. Uh, mostly. Yeah, it mostly has enough infrastructure. I mean, this is what I'm trying to get my head around now that we like go out to an island sometime on weekends is that this island produces nothing but eggs and tomatoes. If you want (laughs) eggs and tomatoes, your neighbor's little boxes, little honor boxes will help you out. Everything else has to come over on a ferry. In the the ferries only run a few times a day and not very reliably. In the 70s when I was a kid and into the early 80s, there were a lot of things that were very expensive in Alaska because they had to come up on a barge. And that infrastructure, you know, the uh, the railroads and the truckers and the ferries all kind of collaborated and fought each other in equal measure, trying to figure out what that highway of goods and services was going to look like. And now I think it's, yeah, prices have stabilized. But Alaska also has an infrastructure that no one else has, which is the small plane infrastructure because so many of the villages are really only supplied by by bush planes. And so there are more bush planes in Alaska than anywhere else in the world, and there's a lot of stuff to accommodate them just to get stuff moved around. When you are an exclave, you are beset on all sides. Uh, and in the case of Alaska and Point Roberts, you're beset by very polite Canadians. Canadians don't beset anyone. You know, that's that's kind of a best-case scenario. Yeah. Whereas it's a little different for... Um, Cabinda Angola with the Democratic Republic of the Congo keeping them from their from their stuff. I have to say though the Canadian border guards engage in a lot of tit for tat when the United States Congress decides they're going to have a little trade war when somebody's mad at Canada and makes some public speeches all of a sudden the border guards are all kind of mean. Pissy. Yeah, and they they uh, you know they take extra time to look under your truck and and then when things are fine, then everybody's back to being friendly. I guess if you're if you're a Canadian border guard, your arsenal of 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 uh, comebacks of of uh, retaliations is a little little limited. Yeah, they're all comedians too. That's the worst part. All their comebacks are like Canadian funny. It's all Paul Schaefer's fault. Paul Schaefer taught Canadians to be funny. Bermuda. The. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're right, but really the entire economy around the Point Roberts region is based on policy differences between the two nations. You know, it's all, all the businesses there are marketing to um, all, Canadians coming south for- It's all Costco gas, For cheaper right? gas, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no Costco there, but yeah, I mean, that's what that's what runs Blaine, Washington, even more so on Point Roberts. And then it goes the other way too, you know, um, Americans going north for cheaper prescription medication right. or to do shopping if the Canadian dollar happens to be weak and so prices have dipped. There's a whole industry in Canada where people come down here, buy Trader Joe's frozen meals, and then take them back up to Canada and sell them. 
<laughs> There's like seriously storefronts, I think, that just sell. They don't have a Trader Joe's up there? No. That's like when you go someplace and they're clearly serving a quarter of a Costco muffin. <laughs> and you're like, sir, this should not be four seventy five. <laughs> you just cut a sixty cent Costco muffin in quarters. Yeah. It's it's uh it's basically Smokey and the Bandit, except it's <laughs> but, for, uh, but for Trader Joe's and Costco yeah, goods. Yeah. The reason why Point Roberts exists, you know the st- so if you can picture, my friends, a Point Roberts is a little there's a Canadian peninsula that dips down like a dewlap. <laughs> like a dewlap <laughs> west of uh west of the northwest corner of Washington state. Unfortunately, it dips down far enough that it crosses the 5340 or, or in this case 4, the 49th oh, parallel. Yeah, the 49th is. Well, right. so uh Right, but this does go back to the Polk administration. The yeah. Treaty of Oregon in 1846 said that the border would follow the 49th parallel west. And it, that was an offer that originally the British had turned down. And this is what they wanted it to be the Columbia River, right? Right. They, yeah. you know, Washington State would be, was kind of the, uh, the disputed territory here. Yeah, What's mostly, now Western Washington? Mostly Canada. Nobody wanted Eastern Washington for some reason, but Western Washington seemed pretty good. Well, we don't really want Eastern Washington. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> uh, so after the British were pissy about the 49th parallel, that's when 5440 or fight became a thing. Yes. It was a campaign, you know, President Tyler was for it. President Tyler of the exploding cannon fame. Uh, Pre- President Polk made it his campaign slogan that we were going to go all, do you know why 5440? I think I had missed the reasoning for 54 degrees, 40 north minutes. Uh, well, let me see. Let me look at it. Do you know how far north that gets you? Yeah. Um, I've looked at it before. The reasoning, because it's a very specific number. Why weren't they just like the 55th 54th, parallel? Right. Or 54th parallel? Uh, what, what does it get? 5440 it, gets you exactly to Alaska, or to, to what was then oh, Russian America or, or whatever. Oh, so it would connect us to, to the the dewlap of Alaska. Yeah. We had not bought it yet, but that was, you know, that was still where non-British North America ended. So why shouldn't America get up to that try point? It would not have connected us actually, because the parts of Alaska that go down to 5440 are are little islands and peninsulas um, with little, or, or, you know, and there's a Canadian bank of the estuary in the way. But I mean, that's Um, all of British Columbia, but basically. I mean, what, what you would want in British Columbia. It's inhabited yeah. British Columbia, we call it, IBC. But they, but they didn't mean 5440 all the way across Canada. No, it would have... Just in BC. It would have come up from the... I, I wonder how far east it went. Somebody will tell us. But I'm bored already just thinking about it. <laughs> so, and uh, the Polk administration was ready to fight for 5440. And then right history the intervened. Intervened? Yeah, history intervened. Intervened. That's like... That's uh, what we say. Intravenous... Uh, History entered your bloodstream in the form of the Mexican-American War. That'll do it. And suddenly... False flag. The crown... <laughs> are you saying... Are you saying that the British government started the Mexican-American War? Yeah, just to get us off of our rightful possession of, of southern British Columbia. Well, it, it worked, because Britain rightfully realized that the Polk administration did not want to fight a war on both borders at right. the same time. And I don't think the British government was allied with the Mexican government at the time. So no, they didn't even have uh, they weren't didn't even have taco restaurants in in Britain at the time. They barely do now. They barely do now. Like, why are there peas on this taco, sir? <laughs> it's a taco. It's a taco. Why not? Um, so suddenly, at this point, the British were willing to make a deal for forty nine because fifty four forty was going to be trouble. But why didn't they... Uh... They didn't know about Point Roberts. Like, nobody had surveyed... Oh, right. And if, as you recall from the Pig War episode, it also left the San Juans ambiguous because 
it just said that the border would continue down the middle of that channel because it dips there to get uh, Vancouver Island into into Canada. Right. Uh, but nobody realized that there was a tiny little bit of this peninsula that crossed the 49th parallel, uh, leaving Point Roberts alone. And now, I, America I was want, not inclined to give it back. I want to point out that there's a ski resort uh, up in Chewila, Washington, called 49 Degrees North. And uh, it's actually at 48 degrees north. <laughs> Why would they lie? Well, I don't, because I, I don't know. It's nowhere near the border. It's just one of those Eastern Washington things. It's why we want to, it's why we partly want to give it to. Do you think they can't read maps up there and that's why? No, I just think it's like a, it's, it's a, some attempt. It's like a reverse land grab though. It doesn't make sense to <laughs> we say want, like. We want, we think the border <laughs> should be lower. Well, I think what they're saying is we have the vibe yeah, yeah, of right. the great North woods. Right. We're, Let's, yeah. We're close to the frontier. Do we talk about this very often that there should be its own state east of the Cascades, but all the way down Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington and Southern Idaho, that should be a state. I mean, it's an implication of the Cascadia argument we've talked about before. Right. That BC and Washington, Oregon have more culturally in common than either country. Northern Idaho should make Montana bigger, but Eastern Montana should be part of North Dakota and Eastern North Dakota should be part of. You can't, draw, should... you can't draw states by culture because yeah, it right. would just be a nightmare. Right. I mean, for one thing, most of the Northeast would cease to exist. Maybe we need a Balfour Declaration. You need a, <laughs> you need a homeland for... Who is the homeland for? For the, the, the Eastern Washington mega types? Or? Uh, yeah. Well, well, what's going what? on out there? There are more John Deere tractors per capita in, in Moses Lake than there are in all of Western Washington. If it's a Balfour Declaration, where are you, where are you trying to send these people? Oh, no, no, no. I just want them to have their own homeland. But it should be there. You're not trying to export them no. To, um, no, no, no. to some other part of the world. I want to create a Basque homeland, a Basque exclave. In Idaho. In Idaho. There is one already. It's just not formal. There's, you don't see it on any map, but you can tell by the, by the tapas or pinchos yep, you, you drive can by. You tell by the sheeps. Common misconception. A lot of people think Shopify. Is just a store. Well, <laughs> I'm here to tell you, Ken, Shopify is more let's than de- just a store. Let's debunk that popular misconception, shall yeah. we? Shopify can uh, it not only helps you connect with your customers, it can drive sales and manage your day-to-day. Even as a small business owner, with Shopify, you'll have all the resources that formerly just big, evil businesses used to have. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved exclusively for big business. That's just what I said, actually. What? I said they were evil, I guess. Yeah, big your, business. Your small business can now be just as evil with uh, whether you're an <laughs> upstart, a startup, or an established business. You can sell everything anywhere. You can synchronize your online sales with your mm. in-person ones. Mm. Stay informed about the whole breadth of your business. It's a journey of endless possibility. If I want to start a super evil business, I'm going to need... To be on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest. Sure, each more evil than the last. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm looking for is an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps. That's exactly what Shopify has. Integrate all your social media postings and apps. How fortunate. They'll give you detailed reporting of all your conversion rates and profit margins, so you'll know which of those avenues is working. 
Your evil business will get more evil by the day. Is Shopify just a store? No, it grows with you. This is possibility powered by Shopify. Shopify powers over 2 million businesses from first sale to full scale. I don't know what that means, but it rhymes, so it must be true. First sale to full scale. Problematic. Go to Shopify.com slash omnibus. All lowercase omnibus. That's the trick. For a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. That's how Shopify weeds out people that don't know the difference between upper and lowercase letters. Listen to what we're saying. All lowercase omnibus. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lowercase omnibus right now. Shopify.com slash lowercase omnibus. So as anybody who has spent, I have not spent time in Point Roberts, but that's kind of the, a good test case for how inconvenient it is to be an exclave. It's just too small to have any of its own stuff. It doesn't have its own high school. It doesn't? Uh, oh, people have to go to America to go to high school? I mean, the, there's not that many. The population there, as you'll imagine, trends old, and I think it's only like 1,200 people. Is that um, right? Let me see. 1,100 people currently live in Point Roberts. So they got a few things. They got a post office and a store. But if you want to go to high school, it's a 40-minute bus ride to Blaine, Washington, and you have to cross two international borders to do so. Your school bus has to cross into Canada, up around, back down in the United States just to go to high school in your own country. When you say if you want to go to high school, is it optional for people from Point Roberts? Do they not have to? Have you met rural Washingtonians? <laughs> I have. Uh, they're uh, all homeschooled. That's a that's really pretty tight. I reference. mean, I might homeschool if it was a forty minute bus ride that crossed two international borders. I wonder if any of them go to Canadian schools. Would you really homeschool? I have a hard time picturing it. Well, we're ha- we're having to picture a world where I live in Point Roberts. Oh, okay, all right. So. I mean, Mindy would do a great job homeschooling, but you'd just kind of swan in and. Are you kidding? I'm an expert on everything. I guess that's just true. ask me. Um, and when there are problems, the fact that this part of America is, you know. 60 miles away or whatever from any, uh, I guess it's less, 30 miles away by land from any other point of America are trouble. In 1973, for example, the weather was very dry. We were having a drought in the Northwest and all the wells in Point Roberts dried up. Oh. And the Americans there said, hey, can Canada, uh, our wells dried up. Can we get some water? And Canada said, no way. What? Uh, That's not very Canadian. Well, I don't know. I'm sure water rights are complicated. Why am I apologizing for the Canadians? (laughs) They, I have no idea. Th- this was like the, the border guards trying to get back at us for something. In 1973, I don't know what it was. Canadians pour out more water in a day than all of Central Asia sees in a year. Uh, well, the pro- I think the problem is Canadian uh, homes are served with pipes uh, full of Molson's instead of water. <laughs> I thought you were going to say saltpeter. Saltpeter. Either thing might be true. To keep their urges down? Yeah. Uh, and so point, the point Roberts, uh, town fathers responded by saying, okay, but we've got some Canadians here and they're not going to get any water. We're going to keep all the water and they get water last. Whoa. So they basically made the, did the Saddam Hussein thing of, of, uh, human, what do they call them? Human shields, human, human shields. They just turned these poor Canadian expats into, uh, hostages basically. Cause they were up there cleaning our homes or doing whatever they were doing. What the heck? I mean, they're not going to sit and watch their Canadian neighbors die of thirst. Well, the Canadians were willing to let their American neighbors die. I I think they were saying, look, just bring up barges full of water. Solve this your own way. You can't have our public municipal water. Bring up tanker trucks. From from America. It would have to come up from Blaine, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And probably some 
jerk at the Canadian border would be looking under the truck with a mirror for 20 minutes. I mean, Blaine, that whole, that whole part of Washington is just a, it's just a swampy marsh. It is. Yeah. Uh, and that part of Southern BC too. Right. The, the whole thing is a swampy marsh. We should just. What's the other kind of marsh besides swampy? An, uh, an arid marsh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Arid marsh. I, I, I loved her early records. In there was another uh, occasion in the 1970s where a dispute between two residents, I guess an American in Point Roberts had had a Canadian grader come in to, um, you know, grade a gravel road or, or something. An American in Point Roberts sounds like a really cool espionage film. That's like, what did we have? A Ghanaian in Greenland or whatever it was? Right. Well, everybody in Point Roberts is an American, except for this Canadian grader who had come in and crossed the border to, to grade a road. And it led to a dispute. The American didn't like the work. Hmm. And... The Canadian and said, I'm not going to pay you. And the Canadian guy said, well, I've still got all my equipment. I'm just going to tear up this road on my way out. So he destroyed his work and headed for the border. But the American got the local Point Roberts law enforcement on his side in hot pursuit. And I think uh, bullets were exchanged. I think, well, not exchanged, but I think bullets were fired at a fleeing construction truck by these trigger happy Small town American cops. I mean, a grader is very maneuverable, but it's not super fast. No, I'm, but maybe it's armored. Maybe the bullets oh. are ka-chink, ka-chink, ka-chink yeah, off the back. Yeah. I don't know. Still called the Battle of Point Roberts to this day. So anyway, I'm just saying there's a lot of logistical challenges when there's not pipelines and roads and train tracks of everything you need from your countrymen, mm-hmm. country people mm-hmm. at all times. It's one of the things that keeps the Russians from successfully invading Alaska. As they'd have the supply chain issues. Russia's always having supply chain issues. Yeah. If they would just build that bridge across the Bering Strait, I can see now why we don't want that. Nope. Putin would invade immediately. Immediately. Like, you know, Sarah Palin would cut the tape ribbon and there'd be <laughs> tanks within seconds. <laughs> you know, Little Diomede and Big Diomede Island for all, all through the Cold War, they would, you know, alternately send frogmen over to like move the rocks around on the beach and then... Then they'd, you know, then the opposite side would send frogmen across and they'd move the rocks around on the beach. I mean, there's We've nothing on either island. Uh, those, that's a very confusing invasion because it's a different day. Am I right? Yeah. It's a different day on Big Diomede and Little Diomede Island. I think they it's started- Tuesday here and Wednesday there. They like started leaving bottles of booze for each other. That happened in a, in a disputed Canadian Danish island, a Canadian Greenlandy island. Oh. They've been leaving- uh, schnapps and vodkas for each other apparently that's nice were the russians doing that as well i, th- I think but who who knows i mean i one time i i i was talking to a friend uh well it's nick harmer bass player of uh, death cab for cutie who why be coy it's, it's the nick harmer go ahead and say nick harmer who used to work as a garbage man in tacoma when he was young before he became oh. a rock star and he told me that garbage men on uh, on hot days you want to take a a uh, garbage bag out to your garbage can, fill it, fill it, you know, like an empty garbage bag, fill it full of ice and put a six pack of beer on the ice and then put the lid on it. So when the garbage men come to like take the garbage, you give them this nice surprise. Hey fellas. Wait, the bag's not closed. No, no, no. It's just kind You're of just sending you, your beer to the dump. If no, you, no, no, no. Oh, you make I a see. little nest and they open, they take the lid off the garbage can and they're like, wow, this guy really understands. Garbage beer. Yeah. He knows what it's and like to be a garbage And most people would not man. drink beer out of a garbage can, but people in that industry don't mind. They're That's not right. squeamish. That's right. 
And uh, so I did it one time. I was like, you know, that's a great idea. The garbage, because the garbage men in my old neighborhood were very helpful to me. They were, you know, they never, one time I had a bunch of garbage and I was, uh, I walked out there when they came, you know, like intentionally was ready for the garbage truck. Did you have an illegal amount of garbage? I had a lot of garbage and I went out and I was like, look, I know I got a lot of garbage here. And the garbage man was like, you know what? Give me 30 bucks. And I was like, there's 30 bucks. And he was like, took 25 bags of garbage or whatever. Wait, I was are, like, are you saying the, the sanitation industry is, is criminaled up? <laughs> there's a little bit of, uh, I am shocked. of, uh, of wiggle room. And so then I was always high fiving him. Anyway, I gave him this beer. And this is uh, your story about how he's a nice guy. He extorted 30 bucks out of No, you. no, he, I mean, because that 25 uh, bags of garbage, if, sure. if he'd applied the normal rates, it would have been a lot of money. But it wouldn't have gone to him. It would right. have gone to the city exactly. of to the city of Seattle, Seattle. To, to pave our roads. But you know that, that's not what they would have done with it. <laughs> anyway, I put this beer in the garbage can, and I came out that afternoon, and the the bag and the ice and the beer had all been carefully left in the yard. So like, I don't know whether they were teetotalers or whether it was a new guy that that was a it's that this fo- trick. Yeah, that followed the rules, or I don't know. I, they didn't accept my. My offering, my, uh, you know, my sacrifice. You need a scrawled kind of Homer Simpson, like beer for you. Yeah. But it's not like they thought, oh, here he put this, he put this little nest of ice and this cold six pack in here. Cause he like forgot, he mistook it for garbage. Now I don't drink beer, but I'm I'm going to start baking brownies and just leaving them in the top of the garbage to see who eats it. That's the thing. I don't (laughs) think I would eat garbage brownies. Um, a lot of these exclaves are also really small. So in addition to the isolation, size is a problem. Gibraltar. Still. Gibraltar, Gibraltar is very cramped. Yeah. I've never been to Gibraltar. I have a few times. Is it cramped? Uh, well, you know, the mountain that makes up the, the, the ranch share of it. The rock. The rock. I mean, it's rife with tunnels, but you wouldn't want to live in there. And the rest of it, it's, but it's, it's covered with... It's covered with monkeys. It's only, there's only a few hundred monkeys. Well, it feels covered with You're them. saying it's covered with monkeys. In fact, Gibraltar is more covered with people than with Barbary macaques. Well, so the, the people are all down on, on, I guess, what would be the west side. There's a town. And then there's an airport you have to go across to even get into Gibraltar. Well, that's what I was going to say. It is so cramped there. 30,000 people living on just a few acres. It's, like, it's the size of the Presidio in San Francisco, basically. With 30,000 residents. There's that many people. I know, right? And it's maybe the monkeys are turning into people. Maybe mm. um, living in Gibraltar makes you evolve very the, rapidly. There are 30,000 people and five Union Jacks for every person. <laughs> like the Falklands. Uh, and it's, as you were saying, it's so tight. The, the runway for the airport actually crosses the main highway. Yeah. So uh, cars, yeah. And, cars and planes take turns. You have to wait around for those KLM planes to, or the British Airway flights. And as you say, you know, there have the, the people there are in a Falklands like scenario, very devoted to remaining British citizens. I got I got in trouble for saying British subjects once. The parent that means something. No, different. no, no, no. They're citizens. They're citizens. Uh, I went around a couple of times to the other side of Gibraltar. And uh bad part of town. Apes, apes trying to sell you street drugs. You could build a whole separate city over there, except I think I think you'd just be perched on a cliff like a like a, a puffin. Maybe that's your big investment opportunity. Create Gibraltar two. Electric it's like it's boogaloo. like it's like Biosphere two, but it's it's you have to cross but monkeys. It, but to it's get not there. owned by Steve Bannon. That's right. 
the uh, you know everybody there very much wants to remain British for whatever reason. That's just the culture of who lives there. Yeah, for the food. That's for the food, of course. Who would want Spanish food? Delicious Gross. tapas and pinchos. <laughs> they go to Idaho for that. Um, but they're also extremely anti-Brexit because oh. for years they've known how difficult their lives would be if Britain left the EU. And so they voted over. I mean, what happened in 2002, I think the UK actually started negotiating with Spain about some kind of co-sovereignty agreement because this has long been a diplomatic sticking point. For As it would. The two it's, it's one of the main penises of Spain. Right. But that's the thing about colonialism. Somebody else has your penises. Yeah, but All that, the good penises have been taken by whoever had a bigger boat. I guess so. I mean, Spain could have, could have, should have whooped England's ass a few times. They just had supply chain issues. Supply chain issues. And, and a couple of storms, inconvenient storms. They're trying to bring in their tanker trucks full of mashed vegetables, <laughs> and they just, they just can't get in. Um, and so Gibraltar held a preemptive referendum at this point saying, hey, do we want Spanish co-sovereignty? And of those 30,000 people, there were like literally 100 C votes. Um, everybody was... The rest were... The rest were no. No. The rest, they, were, the rest were yes, but they voted in English. They, no. voted, they, voted, they voted C? <laughs> you could either vote C with an accent or no in English. Um, because we're all going to be speaking Spanish once co-sovereignty begins. Yeah. Right. Well, that would really suck, right? If all of a sudden that border was no longer open to free trade. Well, it's... It's what's happened there. I mean, Northern Ireland is back to being a little more of an exclave now that that's an EU border, you know? Right. Um, so complicated. The kind of thing that, you know, might lead to Scottish independence. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not all exclaves are small, of course. The world's largest exclave we've already mentioned is Nakhchivan, this slice of Azerbaijan that lies all the way across uh, Armenia, owing to confusing shifting borders in the past as Russians and Ottomans and Persians moved in and out of that area. To this day, um, the, the area is mostly Muslim, which is what makes it Azeri, although plenty of uh, Armenian Christians have also migrated there at different points in the past, probably to get away from the Turks or Persians or whoever it was who didn't want them to be so Christians. Arguably the oldest Christian church. Armenian? Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Uh, well, if you don't count, like, the one Jesus ran. Sure. Was it really a church, though? It wasn't a mega church. There were no guitars. <laughs> uh, so there's this Delaware-sized slice of Azerbaijan way over down by Iran and Turkey. Um, it was uh, it in the 19... It was disputed into World War One, and finally, after the Russian Revolution, the Soviets held a referendum saying, who do you want to be? The population at that time, overwhelmingly Muslim, said, we want to be... Uh, part of Azerbaijan. You know, it wasn't an international border then. Right. But just like Kaliningrad wasn't. One, Lithuania and Russia were part of the USSR. But after the 90s, it was. And the 90s were also a time of that, if you'll recall, that war, you know, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, um, which led to another inconvenience of living in an exclave. You can be blockaded by your enclave neighbors. Right. In this case, um, it's pretty easy to blockade Nakhchivan, even if you only, even if you don't have the cooperation of Iran and Turkey, because uh, of a river that runs through it, south of it, oh. not quite through it. Um, if not for two little bridges into Iran, uh, 
Nakchivan would have been entirely besieged, uh, cut off during the Azeri-Armenian uh, War. Oh, I see, because it's just, because the border comes to a tiny little, well, it's You're just looking a at tiny a little penis. You're looking at <laughs> Not everything. This is like the ultimate Rorschach test is John Roderick what looks at a map <laughs> and it's all a big Kama Sutra. You can't even look at a map without getting all carried away. Look, if, if any of the things that we've talked about today look like a penis, this little area of Turkey that dives down between between Armenia and, and uh, Nakhchivan is a penis. It uh, basically so they're jagged one. There are like no trees. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a barbed it's like uh, a cat penis. Whatever kind of animal that is. Nakhchivan to this day has really no trees. All the firewood was burned to try to stay alive during the winters of the of the Armenian siege. You can see that in the map where there's no there's very little green. The forest ends at the border. Yeah. Tree planting is now very common there. Um, Azerbaijan is oil rich today and is pouring money into Nakhchivan, probably mostly as a screw you to Armenia, because that's the main thing that Azerbaijanis are into. Uh, they, oh wow. Armenia just took all the, all the nice land. Well, Nakhchivan has quite a bit of national pride in, in the same way that Argentina kind of romanticizes, uh, Falklands they've never owned. Yeah. Azerbaijan and particularly the people of Nakhchivan love to talk about how they're the real Azerbaijan, even though they're way the heck down there. Like it's the, um, the name Nakhchivan actually means place of resting. And it's said to be due to an ancient legend that Noah's Ark landed in Nakhchivan, that it was the, where the Ark came to rest. It's also the site of, uh, the setting for uh, Azerbaijani's national epic is said to be down there. It's like, um, that, you their know, cultural no- symbol is there. Their former strongman dictator is from there. So they're like, you know, we're the heartland. Noah's Ark is like well, the, Pieces of the true cross. Everybody down in this region around the Caspian wants to claim that they've got Noah's Ark sitting on the top of their mountain. Maybe Noah's Ark exploded. Maybe Noah's like, God has promised never to flood the earth again. We're never going to need this. Let's blow it up like that whale in Oregon. (laughs) And so Noah puts a ton of C4 in the ark and splinters of it fly throughout the Levant and beyond. It's interesting because, you know, that whole area is in that isthmus between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, yep. and so it would have been part of a Silk Road journey up into Volgograd, <laughs> as we call it, <laughs> from Tabriz across Tbilisi to uh, to Krasnodar. Are you planning your next walk? <laughs> I really Ken, love did this. I ever tell you about the time I walked across the stands? I love this. You know, and then you get well. I guess the Silk Road would be up higher, wouldn't it? It'd be across the steppes. I just love all this, and I wish I'd gone back before it was all at war. Maybe it will be not at war again sometime soon. Inshallah. Why do exclaves exist? Well, in many cases, it's colonialism. You know, it's left over from somebody in a faraway capital drawing some lines and saying, well, okay, this little part's cut off, but um, I can't be bothered. It's it's the tea interval. It's, it's my tea break. Um, Cabinda, for example, is that little bit of Angola that's north on the Atlantic coast. You have to get across the mouth of the Congo River. Yes, right. Like uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo controls the whole mouth of the river, and there's a little bit of Angola North. And of course, nobody blinked at this when they were different Portuguese colonies. Yes, okay, the Belgians got the mouth of the Congo, but we've got the bit north, which we call Cabinda, and we've got the bit south, which we've got Angola. 
they're both administered from Lisbon. We don't care about anybody who's indigenous or what they want. Who cares? Who ever cared? Uh, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately. Fortunately, those countries then became independent, but Cabinda was too tiny. And so now there's 20 miles of the Democratic Republic of the Congo separating Angola from its northernmost border. And like many of these colonial era distinctions, um, not all the political borders match actual ethnic or tribal loyalties. So the people up in Cabinda actually don't feel particularly Angolan, yeah. Angolese. I don't know what the demonym is. Probably Angolan, which means there's a, 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 a vibrant, thriving militia scene up there sure. trying to get Cabinda independent and, in fact, running a government in exile from across the river there. Uh, the, interestingly, I think that they should join Gabon. That would be whoa. really a head trip. Hey, like. <laughs> hey, Cabinda militia, let's think outside the box. We're going to be an exclave of a totally different... We're going to be an exclave of Niger. If anybody's thinking outside the box, it should be an exclave, right? Yeah. They are literally outside the box. Yeah, that really... Cabinda really, really makes no sense on the map. It does not. And, you know, the river there, I didn't know this about the... The Congo used to end like 200 miles from the Atlantic. It didn't drain into the ocean. Huh? That's why there's no big delta there like you'd expect in a in a Nile or an Amazon. It, it ended in an inland lake there in some basin. But that's a massive river. You would It's a massive <laughs> river. And 500,000 years ago the massive river finally broke through and made a massive waterfall into the Atlantic Ocean. Probably uh, woke up a few a few elephants and cheetahs. I wish I'd seen it. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. And so it's very hard rock there, which means there's a very, you know, a, a huge river is pouring through this very narrow channel. It is believed to be the deepest river on earth right there. The Congo is about 750 feet deep Whoa. when it enters the Atlantic. Whoa. You could submerge the MetLife building there, and I hope someday someone uh, does. Well, you know, if I were a billionaire, I would submerge the MetLife building at the mouth of the Congo. <laughs> Like many have talked about, what it. better use of my money? I thought you were going to salinize the Great Lakes or well, whatever. You know, it's I mean, I'm a billionaire. I can do both things. You can do both things today because of that very deep river in the way. It is not easy to get from Angola to North Angola. Uh, it's Where's a, the first bridge across the Congo? I think it's an the the ride the detour is 11 hours of, on dusty back roads through the Congo. So I think you have to go upstream pretty Up to far. Um, today, you know, that really that doesn't happen much cause it's so long. People are more likely to take ferries or planes. Oh, right. It's a, it's an Alaskan type solution. It's not always colonialism. Sometimes it's even older than that. It's good old fashioned feudalism. I mean, sometimes it's war. Like you mentioned Kaliningrad, this little oblast of Russia that lies across Lithuania. That just dates back to, that's the Nazis fault. That's yeah. Soviet tanks rolling in and taking pretty much all of East Prussia back from the Nazis all the way to Königsberg. Well, it's the fact that the Germans, you know, took the Germans were this great sort of uh, long before Nazism, you know, they just were a diaspora that took over kind of all of Central Europe. That was all that's were Dresden ethnic, up ethnic there. Prussians. Yeah, it had been a German town for 400 years or longer. But when the tanks rolled in, the Soviets, uh, they don't care about long-established... No. Uh, I mean, they repatriated a lot of those Germans. And when I say repatriated, I mean they, like... They forced them out. Booted and, them out of their... Into a trail of tears. Of their family's homeland. Not to make an equivalency between the... Between the Cherokees <laughs> and the Nazis? That say. is a smart move to add that, John. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what I was saying. But uh, it is compatible with Marxism, as long as you think Stalinism is Marxism. To kick the Germans out of, uh, of East Prussia? And to take over, yeah, to take over East Prussia and turn it into Russia. I am going to hold up my ruling here. Compatible with Marxism. 
But, you know, obviously Stalinism's not. The true Marxism, which, as we know, has never been perfectly tried. No. For some reason. (laughs) Because it's so so easy and good. You'd think it would have been. But apparently nobody's managed. It was perfectly tried at Antioch in 1989. It keeps getting troubled by, uh, by authoritarian dictators. As I was saying, a lot of these borders just actually go back to feudalism when there were lots of little tiny postage stamps dotting the map. And later they when they passed the duchy, later when they were all consolidated, they didn't often, they didn't always do so in the most logical ways because there would still be the baron of somebody saying, well, I'm still loyal to his majesty. I don't care if I'm closer to the whatever river, I'm going to be part of uh, Saxony or whatever. If you think about the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation, there are a lot of what you would call enclaves or exclaves of protestantism surrounded by a catholic bunch of catholics and vice versa because inconveniently people start up little communities um far away from their other nearest like-minded community yeah right the duke would be like i'm convinced i've got a direct connection to the lord and then the guy next door would be like no i need an intermediary we were just in belgium but sadly we did not make it up to the place on the dutch border i kind of wanted to go the town of barl you, you know about this place? It's Barl Hertog on the Belgian side and Barl Nassau on the Dutch side. Hmm. It's basically two towns that straddle the border with two of everything. You know, there's a there's a Dutch post office and a Dutch water treatment center and a Belgian post office and a Belgian water treatment center. There's little white crosses all over town marking where the border, not, not like a graveyard, but on the ground, little X marks marking where the border is at all times because the border is extremely crazy there. There are uh, 24 little bits of Belgium that are surrounded by the Netherlands, so exclaves that are also enclaves. And some of those have 11 little Dutch bits inside the Belgian bits that are inside uh, the Netherlands. Oh, those Dutch bits inside the Belgian bits. I don't know what mm. I don't know what your genital analogy is going to be here. <laughs> no, it's just they just they're, they're they, look, all, they look like donuts. They're it's, all covered with chocolate is what I love about yeah, them. Yeah, they're 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 little delicious treats. Well, but you know that's Flemish Belgium, so they they yes. have a basically common language. Yeah, the cu- culturally, there's not a great divide. Most of the differences there, the complications there tend to be uh, political or legal, and they predate the uh, EU. Um, right. Uh, for example, back when— They treat when, their water differently. <laughs> right. Uh, back when—because Belgians know that fluoride turns you into a mm. uh, an UFO or whatever— mm. Back when bars, for example, closed at different times before these laws were harmonized by the EU laws, um, you would be, you know, bars that straddled the border would just move their tables over when doors had to close in the Netherlands and they'd continue serving on the Belgian side. When it comes to tax law, you get, if your house is on both sides of the border, you get taxed depending on where your front door is. So many every time the tax law would change for decades in either Belgium or the Netherlands, people would simply move their front doors to get a more advantageous refund. So there's a thing in Belgium about your front door. There there was a time when the tax was determined. I think in the Netherlands, the tax was determined by how wide your house was. <laughs> and that's why all the houses in the Netherlands oh, are super tall yeah, and skinny. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they taxed you by the... By the street frontage, right? Yeah, but there was some other thing about the front doors in Belgium. I don't remember. Looking at a map here, this is driving me crazy because we, the Long Winters, played in Hoogstraten. Is that right next door? 
two different times we played in Hoogstraten, which is a tiny little town, but it has a very tall steeple. The church has a steeple that's visible for miles around. And Hoogstraten is is right next to Barl Nassau, this 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 uh this weird this oddity dewlap shaped uh thing. And I and nobody said a word about it. I there you know You could have walked over. I got into a long conversation with a fan that was a huge that came to our show that also was a huge fan of Ryan Adams. And I spent like at least two hours trying to convince her not to be a fan of Ryan Adams. That's a little harsh. I should have been over walking around uh, this crazy border. What you could have, you could have crossed from, you could have gone in a straight line and crossed from Belgium to the Netherlands, like 15 times. If you pick the right angle, the main road that runs through this area that you're describing is called Hoogstrattenbahn. Ken, did I ever tell you about the time I walked across the Belgian-Dutch border 28 times in, oh, in 10 minutes? That would be such a much better... And they're little... Oh. We can't really convey how weird this is because the tiniest little um, Belgian island in a Dutch island in a Bel- Belgian island is like the size of a tennis court. This is crazy. Some of them are very small. It goes back to, as you were suggesting, two kind of dueling aristocrats. In the 12th century, the barons of Breda uh, were... Um, uh, you know, Dutch aligned, whereas the Duke of Brabant nearby was uh, Belgian. This and is the, this is really kooky. Look at, uh, I mean, all of these little, <laughs> I just want to go in and buy one of these enclaves. It leads to uh, logistical problems. There was a famous case where a motorcycle got hit by a car on the Belgian side the Belgian motorcyclist flies over his handlebars across the border into the Netherlands. The Belgian EMT show up and refuse to treat it because it's on the other side of the border. And that's your problem. Whoa. Well, that's a crazy, uh, that's a crazy like twist on the trolley problem. <laughs> <laughs> the Belgian EMT motorcycle problem. But there are all these places where the Netherlands are South of Belgium. <laughs> yes. In this, on this, this crazy map. There's a real, I mean, a lot of these that go back to old potentates, um, you really do get locked into a very old... You're an old potentate. (laughs) Thank you. I'm an old potentate. (laughs) A lot of these can go wrong. Um, There's one on the Omani-Emirati border where Nawa in the United Emirates is surrounded entirely by the Omani province of Mada, which is, again, entirely surrounded by the... Oh, it's an a, island inside UAE of a UAE proper, yeah. A lake inside of a lake. It's an it's a donut of Oman with emirates on both sides. And uh basically it was just one one village back in uh back in the old days that were like, Oh, the Sultan of Oman, he's the powerful one. We're no dummies, we're gonna stay part of Oman. And then there was a little tinier village that was like, Screw that, we prefer the Emir of whatever. And that has not aged super well because You're the Emir of whatever. Thank you. I thought I was an old potentate. Can I be both? Yeah, I think so. I am an old potentate, the emir of whatever. And today the tables have totally turned and all these guys in Mada who were like, the Sultan of Oman will look out for us. Now Oman is uh, comparatively uh, uh, impoverished compared to the new boss, right. the United Arab Emirates. Not the same as the old boss. So now this little tiny dot in Nawaz is really put in their faces that we chose the currently prosperous one. Although who knows how that will shake out and what i don't i not to keep taking us back to the netherlands no, and Belgium, let's, let's do but i what i don't understand is both of those nations you want to believe are fairly reasonable 
modern uh, places. There's a grocery store here called Snuffleland. Why do you, does that make so you think they're modern? It's a vintage. It's a vintage store that I really want to go to now. Snuffleland. And it's on the Belgian side. Hey, baby, I want to take you to Snuffleland. But what I don't understand is how the two nations, oh my God, there's a little enclave of Belgium that is completely up the road, like like up the road from everything else that's going on here. Um, that's the, the Duke of Brabant's had one little, had one little hunting ground there and he was not going to give it up, I so guess. Crazy. But, but uh, what I don't understand is why they have not, it was individual farmers that, you know, whose right. fields were, it was all based on who they decided to swear fealty to inside the town. What, why they haven't just like erased this and well, just like high fived over it and like, here you go. It's funny. You should mention that because we are now entering an era in which exclaves might begin to go away, including in the case of the Belgians and the Dutch. Now, why do they persist? Um, you know, we've talked about Nakchivan and their cultural pride. You know, we're, we're where the true Azeri soul is. Uh, in the case of Cabinda, it turns out that the part of the Atlantic coast that Cabinda sits on is responsible for two-thirds of Angola's oil revenue right oh. now. So there are economic reasons why... Angola is not given Cabinda back to the Irish. Uh, Kaliningrad, of course, is Russia's only ice-free port on the Baltic, in the same way that Gibraltar is extremely strategic in the Mediterranean. Um, those countries are not too inclined to give back these valuable ports or military outposts. But Palestine is-, is not really going to relinquish Gaza to, uh, to this, well, in Egypt, didn't want to give away Sinai. Does that right? count as an does those count as enclaves? I mean, well, is is Gaza an exclave of? I mean, now that they're occupied, now that they're occupied, it's a little <laughs> bit moot. Um, in 2015, so to use your example of the Belgians and the Netherlands as the the kind of modern thinking people that should be able to work this out, King Philippe visited Amsterdam. King Philippe of Belgium visited Amsterdam and signed a treaty giving back three peninsulas on the Meuse River that are all called the Presquilles, the Presquilles de Lial, the Presquilles Petit Gravier, and the Presquilles de Leiden. Uh, in 1843... So they all have French names, which although it's nowhere near... No, this is in South Limburg, oh, that weird okay. part of... Right? That weird part of Belgium that speak... No, wait, they speak German, don't they? Yeah, were they really close to Luxembourg? Isn't that the weird part that speaks German? It's over by Maastricht? For what, yes, it's, it's just south of Maastricht. Okay, yes. yeah. Um, in 1843, the border between Belgium and the Netherlands was drawn along the Meuse River. Unfortunately, in the 1960s, the river was dredged there for some canal locks, oh. which went straight. Now, that didn't change the border, but it did create these little uh, relics of the old border, which no longer reflect... Uh, you know, what's actually going on there. Right. They're, they're called wildlife preserves, but basically the locals know that this is kind of a wacky jurisdictional no man's land, which in fact means that this is where you go um, to buy or use drugs. This is where you go for your nude sunbathing. This is where you have your loud parties that you think the cops will not shut down. This is where your uh, gay cruising happens. If you're ever looking for a real cruisy spot, John, on the Belgian Dutch border, I am. I would recommend these three little. Uh, peninsulas. Did I ever tell you about the time that I accidentally... Oh, what's what's going to happen here? 
I, this could be good. I borrowed a car from a friend of mine that lives in Hasselt, and I was going to drive down to Liège because I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to spend a couple of days down there, you know, kind of looking at the Battle of the Bulge, eating waffles. And uh, no, you you can eat waffles anywhere in this area, but, but not the Liège. The Liège ones have the have the the crystallized sugar. It's so oh, good. Yeah, that's mm. anyway. I got to the gas station, and you know, in the United States. Uh, the diesel it handle is green, and the regular gas handle is black. But in this place, the diesel was black, what? and the green was regular gas. It was a diesel Golf, and I put regular gas in it, oh, no. and it and it and it and it, you know it it screwed up. It uh, it it putzed out right it in this out. area that you're talking about. Right here, you know, somewhere between Liège and, and Maastricht. And it was a Friday night. And I had planned this whole weekend that I was going to go drive around all the battle sites and blah, 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 blah. And I spent the whole weekend in some little town, trying to, like, Bassinge or something, trying to get somebody to drain the bad gas and fix the car. And it was all this, ugh, it was just a nightmare. If only I could, had been there to tell you where the party spot was. Well, yeah, I would have gone over. Well, the good times, the good times, and what I don't know what year this was, but the good times ended in 2012. Oh, it was before that because a headless body washed up on the riverbank. Whoa! And suddenly, was it missing its left foot? The left foot was in the head. Turned up in Vancouver. Um, the Dutch, the Dutch police were like, uh, "Well, this is actually your problem, Belgium. That this is a little island of Belgium now. Uber. The Belgians can't even get there without, you know, because there's no roads that don't go through Holland. So they have to like figure out how to ferry the river with all their equipment. This feels like a plot from The Wire. It was a thing that nobody cared about until you know a headless body really changes the vibe of a of anything, a party, mm-hmm. a geopolitical situation, mm-hmm. a bar mitzvah, a family reunion." Um, and so this is the moment where they were like, this border should not look like this. And as a result, uh, King Philippe signed a treaty giving up 37 acres of wetlands to the Netherlands. They got some back downstream, but I think only maybe five acres. So, you know, the crown of Belgium agreed to give up 32 acres of its hard-won territory net. Swampy marsh. Of swampy marsh or, or marshy swamp, as they call it, on the other side of the border. Um but it was a case where cooler heads prevailed, and they said, look, this border may look fun on a map, but it's the kind of thing that's very impractical in real life and occasionally leads to decapitations. The, uh, my favorite case like this, which is also a sign that enclaves, or sorry, exclaves can be fixed and become less interesting, if that's what we're into, is the Chitmahals. You mentioned Bangladesh, so let's return there um, to the India-Bangladeshi border in the Indian state of uh, Kuch Behar in West Bengal. Um, this border until 2015 was crazy. The lore was that the local story is that along the Tista River there, there were two uh, 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 rival um, uh, uh, noblemen, the Raja of Kuch Behar and the Nawab of Rajpur, mm-hmm. who liked to play chess. And to make the game a little more interesting, they would play chess for little bits of territory on the river between their countries. Oh, I love this. They would write little IOUs, little paper chits, where they would say, this is whatever. Um, And as a result, for centuries, 
These little dots of land on this complicated border were called the Chitmahals, the paper palaces, uh-huh. the paper palaces. Uh-huh. Um, there are 102 little bits of India inside Bangladesh there. And within those 102 little bits of India, there are 71 bits of Bangladesh inside bits of India inside Bangladesh. <laughs> and in fact, there is one, there was one fourth order spot, Dahala Kagrabari was a tiny little slice of India inside Bangladesh, inside India, inside Bangladesh. Now, this is confusing to live there. These guys were having fun with this. The chess players? You know, this is this is why you can't tax the rich. Because they can't trade uh, villagers on yeah. little bits of paper? Think about that. Just like, oh, nope, now you're in India. Oh, nope. I am holding up the not compatible yeah, with Marxism sign right. because if you're one of these villagers... You don't like it. You don't know where you live. A lot of people actually, some people there actually try to live according to where the accurate borders are and are sticklers for who should be paying their taxes to whom and getting their water from where. Whereas other people are just like, nah, my land has more of a Bangladeshi vibe. I don't care what the Chitmahal map says. I'm, uh, I'm Bangladeshi like my neighbors. And as a result, uh, they, the people of this region were often called the nowhere people. They, oh, they didn't know where they were. They're real nowhere men. Yeah. Sitting on their nowhere hen. You don't know what you're missing. Sitting nowhere in their men. nowhere pen. The world was not at their command. Uh, but in 2009, a secular political... And Bangladesh was always very unwilling to budge on this point. You know, if you're... So blank Bangladesh. Well, if you're a country that's going to lose a quarter of your land area every time it floods from now on... Yeah. Um, maybe you're not inclined to give away any territory at all. True. Uh, but in 2009, for the first time, a secular party uh, called the Awami League took power in Bangladesh, and they were willing to make a deal with India. And crucially, India had not yet been taken over by the Hindu nationalists who now run it. So there was this brief moment in time where non-religious ideologues could make a deal and they did. An elaborate plan was drawn up saying, you know, at January 1st of this year, we're going to begin trading the Chitmahals back and forth. People can decide whether they want to get, you know, we'll, you know, we'll arrange for uh, transportation to the nearest side of the border they want to live on if the border is going to move without them and so forth. And the Chitmahals no longer exist. The border there is a straight oh. boring line along the Tista River. What you need is someone, you need, a, you need someone who's willing. You need a Barkus who's willing. A Barkus? A Barkus. You need a Barkus who who is willing. And if you don't have one, you're never going to, nobody, yeah, so one party has to say, look, I'm going to just, I'm just going to be sensible. And then the, you make the other party look like a dum-dum. Do you think that will ever happen in, in Point Roberts? Do you think Biden and Justin Trudeau will ever say, you know what? The 49th parallel should not cut through. Why the heck do we keep it? Why, why would it, it's so much trouble it doesn't, it's not like a tourist spot. We'll pay to move all the Americans down closer to the Costco in Blaine. I have a relative by by marriage, not really a relative because I've never been married, but I have a close thing, a close person, the father of a close person, who was the postmaster general in Point Roberts <gasps> back in the 50s and 60s and did all of the post officing. For probably around 1,500 people. I'm going to guess it was yeah. bigger then, not smaller. Yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of uh, postcards that get stamped there on on certain holidays to commemorate the pig war. It's like, you know, it's a busy post office. It's certainly a cheap place to live. Nobody wants to live there. It keeps 
property value is very low because it's a huge hassle. Maybe you and I should start buying up Point Roberts parcel by parcel and yeah. then give it back to the Canadians. Give it back. Boom, boom, boom. Perfect. And that concludes Exclaves, entry 436.NU2021, certificate number 51829 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and hasn't been finally smoothed out by a couple of barkuses that realize none of this is helping anybody, these are just a bunch of dewlaps overlapping. There just needs to be one place, one public square. What's it going to look like? One giant community of loving people. They all live in a united federation of planets. They, they have one world government. They don't even know what a border is. We should have started by explaining. Yeah, that's right. That a border is a place where Canadians sneer at you. They don't even use money, right? It's just all from, the, from those who... Have the mostest to those that have the leastest. Oh, compatible with Marxism. They all have replicators, and it's a post-scarcity world. In the meantime, we live in in a balkanized uh, universe where there are multiple islands in the Danube that have a bunch of Serbian kids partying on them and Bosnian kids that are shooting them with slingshots. Yeah, we never got to those islands. And Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of them just similarly swampy marshes you can find us there at ken jennings and at john roderick you can email us at the omnibus project at gmail.com you can hang out with other futurelings and and um, debate all the ones that we didn't talk about and yell at us for saying penis 60 or 70 times in this episode mostly yelling at me i think we're going to take it from the left for saying penis more than vagina oh don't you think we have to even that out? Vagina, 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 vagina. No one's going to like yoni, that. Yoni, 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 yoni. I predict no one will like this. Uh, you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Ken, you've got a little bit of a backlog of mail there. We've had a backlog for a while. We got one postcard from... I just do, lost the postcard. Do, do. We got one postcard from Charlie who went to see the museum in New York where the paintings of the uh, of the Russian mystic Nicholas Rerick are kept. And it actually looks really great. He says they are... Uh, most of the paintings are tranquil and surreal. But this one is uh, cataclysmic. There's a, there's a Ooh, yeah. book of revelations apocalypse going on there. And I forgot. I wanted to go there last time I was in New York and I totally forgot. I'm going to go to the... The uh, this Nicholas Rarick museum next time I am there. Oh, you got a present. Oh, how do you know it's for me? There's a post that's saying to John. Okay. And also it's the all color world of trains. Oh, that's a nice book. It does seem like a book for British children, but I, I think you have a lot in common with a British child of the 1970s. I do. I do. I, uh, I, you know, trains are compatible with capitalism, but also this is the kind of book that you often find at one of those discount book. Uh, places for 99 cents. Like next to the Nike outlet store? Yeah, it's just sort of like a book about trains from the 60s. Public domain photos of trains. But this I, has got a lot of choo-choos. I wish I could tell you who sent it to you, but uh, the post-it is unmarked. There's no letter. And so all I know is the first initial. It's D from San Antonio who 
who sent this. Thank you, D. Here's a picture of the economy-class bar of the Indian Pacific, considered essential by Australians, making the 66-hour, 3,961-kilometer journey from Sydney to Perth. Did you check out that subtle dig at the Australians? They, they consider the bar car essential, well, if, yeah. you know what, if you know what I mean. It's pretty good. And the economy-class bar looks pretty fun. Like, you can't, I can't even imagine what the business class one is. Well, it's probably it's probably not fun. It's probably boring because those people are, are bores, business class people. I am holding up the compatible with Marxism side ding, of ding, the ding, sign. Ding, 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 ding. Thank you so much, D, whatever your name is. I'm going to say your name is Donald. I'm going to say your name is D's Nuts. <laughs> yes, I'm sure his name is D's Nuts. Did you do the Patreon thing? Oh, and then finally... Please support our show at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, membership in our community brings you all sorts of benefits, but it comes with rights and responsibilities. Sure. You're a citizen now. That's right. So join us at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Today's show was suggested by a donor. Uh, it was actually Jeff who sent over the life magazines, which I did not have handy last night. So oh. I could, I could not, they're sitting over there. Yeah. They're yeah, right they here. I could have done a show about uh, Omar Bradley's memoirs or, or whatever it was that right. was on his list. But instead, I did not have the Life magazine. Jeff, I'm sorry we had to do the the backup show on X-Close. I hope it met. You'd have to spend the first 20 approval. minutes of the show explaining who Omar Bradley was to our millennial listeners. Millennials love Omar Bradley. They, oh. think, they think he's slay. He's a lesser-known uh, five-star general. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>